Hi, I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg, and we're the co-founders of The Skim. Welcome to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch. On every episode, we invite smart, inspiring, successful women to chat candidly about what it takes to get to the top, and then what it's like when you actually get there. So this is a podcast about the real stuff, the crappy days, the bad advice, the first big career win, and the people who are there for the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We started the skim from a couch, and we have only one rule on this one, no BS. Our guest this week is Christy Hefner. She is the daughter of, you guessed it, Hugh Hefner, the late editor-in-chief of Playboy. And she's got an impressive legacy of her own. She spent 30 years of her career at Playboy, 20 of those as chairman and CEO. That makes her the longest-serving female chairman and CEO of any public company ever. She took Playboy Magazine Digital, and under her leadership, the company's value topped $1 billion. Since stepping down from Playboy in 2009, she has been focusing on charity work and civic issues. Please welcome to the couch, Christy Hefner. Thank you. Hi, Christy. Uh, I am so excited to do this interview with you. Um, so first of all, we we talk about the startup life. We are so in the moment of startup life right now. Uh, Danielle is stuck in traffic because New York City has terrible traffic. She is on the West Side Highway. She is coming. She's going to come in a few minutes late. So I'm flying solo. Bear with me. Not a problem. So Christy, I think you are, are one of the most fascinating people that we could have on, on this, uh, this show for a few reasons. One, because... It's interesting to hear about working with a parent, two, because of what your parent actually did and started, and three, because of really how you have truly paved the way um, for women to rise in in corporate environments. And I I don't think that enough people know about that story. And I think that's something that Danielle and I have just been so uh, fascinated by. So I want to- Well, I appreciate your saying that. And in fact, in addition to the civic and not-for-profit work that I do now. I actually still spend a fair amount of time in the business world, but instead of running a large public company, I work a lot with the companies that are often women-run and often entrepreneurs. So we can talk about that. I love that. And as music to our ears. So I want to talk about the elephant in the room, which is you talk to anybody, no one wants to think about their parents having sex, knowing about sex, saying the word sex. And Not only do we all know what your dad started and how he made his legacy, but you actually worked with him on building that legacy. So what was that like? Well, I didn't grow up with my father. Uh, My parents divorced when I was quite young, and then my mother remarried. And so my brother and I actually grew up with our stepfather's last name and uh, living in a suburb of Chicago. So in some ways, I don't think... I had the experience of a famous parent, never mind a controversial parent, just because of the circumstances. But I will say that the singular influence in my life unquestionably was and is my mother, who's 92 and a pistol, and I love her dearly, and her attitudes about everything from the war in Vietnam to the sexual revolution were very similar to my father's, and that made them very similar to my generation's. And so I think I was shaped by the fact that I had very progressive parents. At what point did you realize, um, how old were you when you realized what what your dad had started? I don't have any um, vivid, singular memory. Uh, We grew up with Playboy magazine along with Time and The New Yorker and 
the New York Times, you know, on the coffee table. So I don't ever remember it not being around. And my mother's attitude, again, was it was a great magazine with great writing in it. And the philosophy of sexual and personal freedom was something that was, as I say, very consistent with my own generations and very consistent with her views. So I didn't go through any period of being uncomfortable about it, I guess. So you never had a moment like, you know, in in middle school, high school of just being embarrassed at all? Well, again, I grew up as Christy Gunn. So Mm -hmm. by the time people knew who my father was, they already knew me. Um, I think people thought it was cool when they found out about it. I had my Sweet 16 party at the Chicago Playboy Mansion (laughs) with 15 (laughs) girlfriends and we bowled and went swimming and, you know, had lunch and open presents. So, so you had a cool I think party. for me, the the cool part of it when you're a kid is things like there was a game room and you could right. play all these pinball <laughs> machines without having to put quarters in them. <laughs> so at what point did you go from Christy Gunn to Christy Hefner? And, you know, I know you started working with your dad when you, when you were fairly young. So how did, I mean, what, what was that transition? Well, I changed my name back uh, the summer between my junior and senior years in college. I had been elected to Phi Beta Kappa in my junior year. And I guess I thought about the fact I was going to get this certificate that had a lot of meaning. Mm -hmm. My mother had divorced my stepfather, and I didn't have a close relationship with him. And I was in an environment where I already had a group of friends. I had a wonderful boyfriend. So I guess at that point, I thought, this is the safest environment in which to take back a famous name that I'm ever going to have. And so that summer when I was back in Chicago— I went to court and had the gun dropped and went back to Hefner. And I have to say, I thought it would, and it indeed did, mean a lot to my dad. And that Mm -hmm. was sort of special, too. Yeah. So that was the name part. And then I worked for uh, a year as a journalist after college. And originally, I was going to go to the Radcliffe Publishing Program, which I'd been very honored to have been accepted in. And my dad suggested that it might be more useful in terms of what I would learn if I worked at the magazine one summer instead of the Radcliffe program. So I did do that, which was, in fact, fantastic. I mean, you get to work with the best editors and writers. And then I moved back to Boston, and I uh, worked for the Boston Phoenix, which is kind of like the village voice. Mm -hmm. And at that point, honestly, my plan was to apply to Yale and get a degree in law and public policy. And my dream was to wind up either in the U.S. Senate or the Supreme Court. (laughs) So I wasn't thinking about any kind of business. I think that was very much not in my mind. And I was visiting my father who'd recently bought his home in L.A. And he said, well, before you go to graduate school, would you like to work at the company and learn a little bit about what it is? And I think I thought I've only been out of college a year, so taking another year off is not a big deal. And it's kind of like a junior year abroad. It'd just be interesting. I had no plan of staying, never mind running the company someday. And I think he had no plan beyond just seeing it as a chance to spend time together. So you were, you became an executive at a very young age. How old were you? Well, I did a number of jobs in the company in the early years. I started with just a special assistant to the chairman title and got project assignments and then I was responsible for a retail venture and launching some special interest magazines and heading up promotion for the 50th so you were 20, given, 25th like, real anniversary. Responsibility at, well, know. over over years, yeah. you know, over years. Uh, and then I did 
get a real job in the big sense of the word real uh, when the company got in trouble and I had been there seven years and the thought was the the company would recruit a new president because the person who'd been president was had presided over the fortunes of the company not mm-hmm. not doing very well. And I had been on the board for three years by then, and I went to the board and to my father, and I said, I have an alternative. I think that I could do this job, and I would form an office of the president with the then chief financial officer, and instead of doing a search, which would take many months, and then the new person has to build trust and learn about the company, we could get started in the turnaround right away. So that was um, a dramatic change for me. Did you ever, you know, as you kind of rose through the ranks, did you ever have imposter syndrome? I wouldn't go that far, but there unquestionably were a lot of moments where I would think, um, I can't believe I'm sitting in this room. I can't believe I'm talking to these people. I can't believe that uh, I have, you know, this assignment. And I will say, looking back at the moment when I suggested that I be named president, it was a WTF moment. Right. I mean, you, I <laughs> what, have to, what made you like, what, I mean, you know, you know, I have to look back and go, yeah. what was I thinking? I was 29 years old. Wow. I'd never worked in another company other than as a journalist. I didn't have an MBA. And I think unquestionably part of what I was thinking is I didn't know everything I didn't know. Now, the good thing, which is why we're able to have this conversation, <laughs> is that, uh, you know, I knew enough. And part of knowing enough is knowing how important it is to surround yourself with smart people and empower them. And uh, part of it was the fact that the company had a controlling shareholder. And so we could manage for cash, not for the stock price. And so we had certain advantages that we capitalized on. You know, I'm fascinated because, you know, you given how you've described your relationship with your dad, that, you know, really you, you, you became, you know, more of a father-daughter relationship as an adult. Um, when I, you know, I've been in kind of, um, I would say, professional settings with my parents and, you know, I'll be all professional in front of other people and close the door and I'm like, I'm tired, I'm hungry, or like I'm myself, the way I am at home. And did you have that, like, sense of comfort? Did you let your guard down? Like, you're like, I'm just with my dad in an office. Or did you have the, the kind of professionalism that we probably all do have at work? Um, I guess I would say I think I had both. So if it was a meeting setting, uh, then it was a professional relationship. And I called him Hef and felt that, my interactions with him were consistent with the way I would work with any other executives and very respectful, the fact that he was the largest shareholder. But that didn't mean that we couldn't sit in the living room and watch a movie together or play backgammon together or, you know, laugh about something. So I think we were successful at having both. When you, you know, you had this, as you said, your your WTF moment when you asked to be president. Um Obviously, there's a lot of stuff, as you talked about, like you had to learn on the go and you kind of didn't know what you didn't know. Who did you go to? Who was your 911 call? Like, who could you kind of break down to and be like, I have no idea what I'm doing? I didn't have one person, um, although I did work closely with the then CFO. And there was also, although he left before I became president, but there was a terrific um kind of head of HR and organizational development who had been brought into the company. 
to professionalize it, who was a uh, enormous help to me and helped me choose, for example, programs that I went to on finance and marketing and management policy and uh, strategy as a way of complementing my liberal arts education. But I pretty early on, I think, became a believer in building uh, networks of smart people rather than looking for a single mentor, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know women who have benefited enormously by having a single mentor, so I'm not no, I think critical Danielle of it, I, but well, I think it's and I are hard. similar. Like we, we have, I don't think we have a singular mentor. I think we've had, we've had a network, um, a predominantly of women that, um, we kind of go to as our 911 calls for various things. And a lot of yeah. them we've, we've put on this podcast. Right? Well, well, and I, and I think your point about various things is, is exactly the right point, which is the person that you go to with one problem is maybe different than the person you go to with another. So I had been a founder of the Chicago network, which uh, started in 1979, which was at that time that uh, women were coming together around networks or forums to kind of help each other. I was a co-founder of the Committee of 200, which was all business women and entrepreneurs. I was the first woman in the Chicago chapter of the Young Presidents Organization. And then I just had people I reached out to and connected with. So one of the reasons why we were able to launch Playboy.com in 1994 when magazines were just licensing their name to existing um, companies like AOL and Prodigy Mm -hmm. was because I had met Jim Clark at a conference and he was the founder of Mosaic, which was the predecessor to Netscape. And he thought the idea of Playboy Online was very cool and we'd built a successful TV business. So we were interested in multimedia and he said, I can build you an interface so people can just type playboy.com and go to your site, which, so of course, today, to about, yeah. you know, today sounds so self-evident. But, you know, in 92, 93, there yeah. were only about 10,000 sites in the world and only about 10% of people had ever been online. <laughs> so it was like a radical idea. And I tell that story only as an example of I think you can't know too many smart people. And I have spent my life and continue to spend my life constantly trying to um, – challenge myself to learn about businesses I don't understand or haven't been exposed to and meeting new people. And I think that was enormously helpful to me when I was turning the company around. And then when we developed our strategies for growth. What, what, during this time when you were at Playboy, what, what were you not good at? What were your areas of weakness? I probably took too long to um, make personnel changes when they didn't work out. I, I probably err on the side of, you know, if we hired this person or we promoted this person, then we we have to exhaust every possible way of making it work. Um, and I suppose if in the real world you probably always err on one side or the other, i.e. you either move too quickly or you move too slowly, probably just in terms of kind of my personality and sense of... Mm-hmm. Commitment to people, I still choose to err on the side of moving a little too slowly. But if there's a cost that comes with that in a company, no question. So what did your largest shareholder, uh, what kind of critical feedback did you get from him? We didn't have a lot of issues that we didn't agree on. Um, mm-hmm. He did want to keep the Playboy Clubs open when I thought we should close them. And we struck a agreement that we would open a new club because the argument was the 
club concept hadn't really been refreshed since its origins. And if we opened a new club, which had a whole variety of changes to it, that might be successful because there were still a lot of people who were card members. And we did that in New York, and uh, it wasn't successful because it's just, the, in my view, the time for kind of nightclubs like that that depended on affordable top-name entertainment was passed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in that case, you know, we kind of struck an agreement that we would try it and we would measure the results. And if it didn't work, we would move on. And that's what we did. Do you ever cry at work? No. What do you think now when if someone comes to you for advice, you know, given how, how, what a mentor you are to people now, when people ask you about crying at work, what advice do you give to, to younger women? I've had people cry in my office. Um, so I'm not of the view that you must never, you know, show those intense feelings at work. But I think you, my advice would be to be judicious about who you share that with. I mean, if something has upset you to that extent, hopefully there's someone in that company, whether it's a friend or your boss or the head of HR that you can go and share that with, whether it's because it's a personal situation or a professional one. How, whether now or, or I'm actually curious if it has changed, but what are the things that stress you out the most? What are the types of situations? And then how do you deal with that stress? I don't choose to be in situations anymore that stress me out. Oh my God, I love that so, answer. Tell me how to I do mean, that. <laughs> well, well, you know, I was, as you, as you mentioned in your kind introduction, you know, I was CEO of a publicly traded company for 20 years and only after I was out of it and, and I enjoyed it and I think objectively I was good at it. But when you're out of it, then you look back and I was able to say, you know, that job was pretty much worrying 24 seven about everybody else. And now I'm at a point in my career where I put a portfolio of activities together, some of which are political, some of which are not-for-profit, and some of which are business. But in every case, I'm choosing the activities based on, first of all, are these people I would actually enjoy having dinner with? Because if the answer is no, then I'm not interested. You know, secondly, do I think what they're doing is interesting and important? Third, do I feel I can make a difference? And fourth, am I going to learn something from it? So if I thought any of those things weren't present, never mind if I thought it was stressful, I wouldn't be doing it. On Skin from the Couch, we talk about career highs and lows. Danielle, I want to acknowledge your career high. I don't know if you're aware, but you've worn two stylish outfits two days in a row. Thank you. I wish you wouldn't say it like it was an anomaly, but it's okay. (laughs) My low is when I wear the same thing that has been on the floor. So It's my low for you, too. Yes. You do it, too. But I do have a new favorite thing that is helping me out with my two-outfit streak. It's called Daily Look. It's an online premium personal styling service that sends you a box of clothes curated for you. How does that work exactly? Well, I will tell you. Thank you. All you have to do is fill out a style profile to build a one-on-one relationship with a stylist. Then you get sent clothes from brands like Rag & Bone, J-Brand, and more. Plus, new designers you haven't even heard of yet. But what if you don't like the clothes? Well, that's the best part. You can just send it back. You also get a preview of what you're going to be getting before so you can nix things in advance. Get started today by going to dailylook.com slash skim. 
S-K-I-M-M, and click Get Started. That sounds pretty easy. Dailylook.com slash skim. Don't forget to use the promo code skim, S-K-I-M-M, to get $10 off your first box. Go get styled today. So in true startup fashion, Danielle has just walked in the room. She got it. She was Hi, in Danielle. traffic. Uh, she's, hey, Christy. How are you? We are. I'm fine. Sorry about realized. the traffic. <laughs> yeah, it's been a nightmare anyway. I just nice realized we're wearing to, the same uh, jeans. So are we? it's great. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. I love when we dress alike. So we were just talking, and I love this answer. Because, um, Danielle, you're going you're gonna to love this answer, which is um, when I asked, how does Christy deal with stress? And she said, and I said, what situations give you stress? And she said she chooses not to put herself in stressful situations anymore. And I was like, how the hell do we do that? That sounds amazing. Do you ever think about how you exit it? Like, are you concerned with how leaving a situation like that looks at, at this point? Or are you, you know, very confident at, at this point after all you've been through, just confident in the direction that you want to take yourself and your career? Um, it's a good question. I, I guess probably th- that I'm confident enough that I am unlikely to wind up in that situation because I have the benefit of a lot of years of experience to vet, if you will, a situation before I get into it. I would say this. I thought one of the most interesting studies I'd ever read about kind of what we're talking about was uh, something McKinsey did a a few years ago, and it was particularly around high-performing women. And what was it that allowed them to to achieve uh, success? And the working assumption before the study was that the women would say that really key was they had found the right to use the kind of cliche work-life balance, right? I hate when people say that. Yeah, I, I do too. But that was kind of the going in hypothesis. And in fact, it was not at all what the women said. What the women said is it was about balance, but the kind of balance that was critical for them was the balance between the time they spent in activities that energized them and gave them joy and the time they spent on activities that drained them. And that had nothing to do with whether it was work or family or travel or spending time with girlfriends or whatever, but that you could not simply do well and thrive unless you had carved out enough time in your life for whatever those moments are or whatever those activities are that really are a source of energy and joy so for can you. can I say, like, you sound so at peace and like, like you really got your shit together. And I'm just like, (laughs) is this something, is this something that happens over time? Did someone teach you that? And, and, you know, you talked about your your mom in the beginning of like that, you know, she's been such an influence on you, but like where, what were you like at at 29? I mean, when you became president, were you always like this? Or at 31 when you get stuck in traffic. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Um, Listen, people who know me well would absolutely say I'm an intense person, uh, I'm a perfectionist. Were you scary as a manager or intimidating? I don't think so. I think the people, I remain very good friends with a lot of former colleagues, including, which I take as a source of pride, a number of people that I had to fire who remain mm. good friends. Wow. Uh, How did you do that? <laughs> I think it has to do with treating people with an enormous amount of respect. And that means taking ownership of the fact that you put them in that position. So you are you know, in effect, acknowledging a failure on your part to understand what the need was and what the skills or style of the person was and how it wasn't a fit, and then helping them 
I mean, we're obviously not talking about a situation where someone has, you know, um, been abusive in the workplace or cheated you or done engaged in bad behavior. We're talking about a situation where uh, someone has done their best, but it was a, they're not the right person for the job. Um, and then it's about helping them find the right uh, mm-hmm. situation and being supportive in that way. One of the things that I, I didn't know about you in, in kind of a, a broader context is that you're the longest serving female chairman and CEO of a public company. Yes. That would be, however, an example of staying too long. Honestly, no, okay. <laughs> no, nobody should be doing that job for 20 years. That was going to be my next question. How did you do that? And uh, also, how did you think about, you know, um, building the responsibility of of being a woman in that position of power and building a team or having the ability to build a team that can reflect that? Well, I, I do deeply believe that uh, building a team and a culture is as critical as anything that you do in terms of strategy. Uh, you know, Peter Drucker, the management guru, said many years ago, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I deeply believe that's true. And in my view, the two things that were most valuable and effective in terms of the culture were one, a strong commitment to diversity. And over 40% of our executives were women when I left. And candidly, I took advantage I of the glass that's ceiling. so fascinating that, you know, when you think about Playboy for the uninitiated, like, or uneducated about it, you, you, I certainly, the first thing that comes to mind is not that 40% of the people who are going to work there and be in executive positions are, are women. And I, I just, I find that fascinating. Like, how did you, I mean, how did you even... What's what's your what was your pitch to people to executives to hire? How did you create that culture that you know? Also, you weren't creating it from the ground up. There was a legacy when you when you got there. Well, it was a legacy that was very uh, respectful of individuals. So, I mean, just as small examples, it was a kind of company that would never have listened in on employees' phone calls to see how they were doing, or asked employees to take random drug tests or polygraphs. I mean, it was a strong culture around respect. And it goes back to my father's values, which he in turn, I think, very much got from his mother. And one great example of what that meant is when uh, my mom was pregnant with me, my dad was working at a company in human resources in Chicago, and he got this promotion where he was going to be interviewing applicants for jobs. And his boss said to him, let me give you a tip, Hugh. Um, don't you don't have to spend very much time in interviews with people who have Jewish or foreign-sounding last names because wow. we don't wow. want those kinds of people. Wow. And my father quit. So he didn't have another job, yeah. but he quit. And so there were really strong values at the company that I could build on. But specifically in terms of women, I went after the best people. And to my comment about the glass ceiling, for example, I hired the number two at Investor Relations and Communications from the Tribune Company. Hmm to come and work as the number one for Playboy. Now, at the time, the Tribune Company was a hugely successful Chicago-based media company, and no logical person who was at a company of that size, Mm -hmm. no person logically would have come to a much smaller company, except that she knew that the Tribune's culture and the attitude of its C-suite executives was one that was never going to give that top job to a woman. So I said, but you can have, you know, you can have that top job, and she was 
sensational. She remains a very good friend and was so well-respected that she was voted the head of the National Investor Relations Professional you know, Association for a period of time. And then once you get to a critical mass, it's like any group of people. If you're representative of a group and you're not in the majority, it's hard if you're the only person who looks like you that's sitting around the table where decisions are made. And if you look at who else is sitting around that table and you say, I'm not going to be the only person who looks like me, that's a more appealing environment. What? How have you handled throughout the years um, critical feedback on Playboy being an example or not an example of good journalism? Hmm. Well, I can't actually remember anyone ever criticizing the quality of the journalism in the magazine. I mean, the Playboy interview was, was and I would argue, remains the gold standard for Q&A journalism. But I think, you know, there's been, uh, you know, it's no secret, there's been tons of criticism over the last decades around Playboy, some saying Playboy stands for individuality. It's standard for, it stood for great journalism. It stood for empowering women, where others are saying, how can you possibly say this is about empowering women? It's a lot of nude pictures and a lot of nude women walking around with a guy in a rope in the house. Right, but that's a different issue than the journalism. But yes, unquestionably, there people have very different views of the nudity in the magazine and the attitude about sexuality in the magazine. And my father once made, I think, the astute observation that reading Playboy is like taking a Rorschach test. And it, how you feel about it reveals a lot about how you feel about beauty, sexuality, Images of sexuality, how I felt about it was consistent with how the readers and the writers and the employees felt about it, which was that it is very easy for men to both desire and admire women. And it would not be a better place or a better planet if we tried to remove the sexual attraction that is at the heart of, you know, kind of humanity. Um, I came of age in the women's movement at a time when there was a very uh, robust pro-sex ad- attitude as a part of feminism. It was my bo- our body ourselves. It was a lot of erotic art. It was the birth control pill. And it was only later that there was a kind of attitude that started with the opposition to violence in uh, film and television and the famous Rolling Stones, I'm Black and Blue and I Love It cover. Did, did you ever, I mean, you know, obviously I understand how you and your your dad, the viewpoint and the position you and your dad took and obviously the organization took, but were there ever moments internally when you were like, are we really going to do this? Or, oh, dad, <laughs> like, seriously? Like, did you ever have a moment like that? No, I don't think so. I mean, certainly my father's personal life was an unusual life, but it was his life. And I think he was extremely well-respected as a friend and as a boyfriend, to be honest. I would say he's probably stayed friends or had stayed friends with more former girlfriends than any other guy I know. (laughs) So that has to say something about the nature of his romantic relationships. <laughs> that's that's a legacy in and of itself. But what do you think uh, the legacy of Playboy, especially now that um, your dad is is no longer um, around, what do you think or hope the legacy will be? 
Well, he, uh, my youngest brother, so my dad remarried and had two sons in his second marriage. So I have two brothers who are in their 20s who I'm very fond of, as well as um, my brother from my mom and my dad. And my youngest brother, Cooper, is the chief creative officer. So in effect, the role that my father played when I was CEO. And I think he's very much trying to take the principles of you know freedom and style that were the underpinnings of the magazine and the company and translate them for the next generation. Now, I've been out for 10 years, so I'm not a person who can opine on what strategies the company is pursuing right. and you know whether they're making the right business calls. But I think that's the hope is that it will uh, continue to thrive as not just a logo, but as a, a brand that has an identity and a meaning and that people can relate to and that the attitudes about freedom and sexuality remain relevant uh, and important. And for you, you're doing, you know, so many different things now that are, are completely different than what you spent uh, the bulk of your, the previous part of your career doing. What haven't you done yet? What's still, you know, the, the bucket list items that you want to tackle? Um, I don't know that I have any bucket list items. I am open to doing things I haven't done before when they present themselves to me. Um, I'm on the advisory board now of a very large family-owned company whose father founded it and whose daughter succeeded him that's in agriculture, not an industry that I have any experience in, but a really interesting company and has opened me up to learning about water and organic farming and things that I didn't know before. I'm an advisor to a company that's not in the digital currency space like Bitcoin is, but is intending to be a trading platform for digital currencies. So I'm now learning about digital currencies and blockchain. So I'm kind of always in search of opportunities to expand what I know mm -hmm. and the smart people I get to spend time with. And the last question that I have, which I always find fascinating, is what's the worst piece of advice that you've gotten along the way? Oh, the worst piece of advice. I'm sure my hesitation is not that I haven't ever gotten bad advice, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm <laughs> not coming up. Mind. I'm not coming up with any. I will say I, I feel that I have been very fortunate in having made friends with people from you know Warren Buffett to Catherine Graham who were extraordinary in the advice that they gave me, and I guess that sort of has overwhelmed any bad advice that I got along the way. Have you ever given bad advice? Oh, probably. Um, I know that I misread for a while when I first became president and the company was in trouble, what was the appetite for information. Hmm. So I thought I couldn't communicate too much. It seemed to me, you know, people wanted to know what was going on. The company was in financial difficulty, and that's a scary time. And so I would do all of these memos and meetings, and I would tell them all the problems we had. And it took me a little while to realize that actually people don't really want to know all the problems that you have. They want to know that you're solving the problems. And so there were things like that that were learnings for me for sure. Great. Well, Christy, thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to talk to you and thank you for, uh, for helping to pave the way for women to become CEOs of public companies. Uh, uh, it's a 
was a pleasure. And Thank I think you. what you guys are doing, as Daniel knows, I'm a I'm a big fan and I know the stress that goes with what you're doing, but I want you to know that you're making a big difference. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you for the time. And I hope I get to see you soon. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.